0: Let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 4. And this evening we're looking at verse number 5 of this text in the fourth chapter. And our subject this evening is a sweet spirit. I remember it's been about 12 years ago when I first moved to California that I was really kind of apprehensive before I came about the kind of people that I would meet when I got here. I thought that you know, people here would be kind of snooty and stuck up, and I was worried about the kind of people that I would have to live around. And the truth of the matter is, most of my friends, almost all of my friends, all of my life have been uh, either members of the church or they're Christians, and I haven't known very many other people. And so I have discovered, just like I did when I came here, that when people are taught the truth of God's Word, that they do turn out to be friendly people. And I've encouraged each of you to be friendly people and that there really shouldn't be anyone who comes into our church that would feel uncomfortable with the way that we treat them. We want to be people that do have a sweet spirit. Paul was speaking to the Philippian church about this, and I'm going to talk to you in just a few minutes about Uh, a really good reason, uh, one particular reason in just a moment why having a sweet spirit is so important for us. But we're looking at this one verse in Philippians chapter 4. Let's just stand if you would please and read this and then we'll have a word of prayer and get into the message tonight. Paul writes in verse number 5, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to gather tonight. We just ask you, Lord, that you'd be with the message. Bless our people. We're just so thankful for those who come out uh, to hear your word. Uh, we just give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The subject of verse number five is moderation. Now I pointed out the last time that we talked, that's been a couple of weeks ago now, and it seems like forever since I preached the first part of the sermon, But the original word that we have in the King James, moderation, is a very difficult one to put into just one word or to give an exact equivalent of it. There is really no exact equivalent in the English language. So there are people who have proposed that the word means reasonableness. It carries with it the idea of gentleness. Forbearance is sometimes suggested or contentment. It's really just a hard word to translate with just one word in the English language. So I've chosen to call it a sweet spirit because I think that includes all of those things, combines all of those things, reasonableness, gentleness, forbearance. All of those things are included in this word moderation. Some people, I think, are in a sense naturally born this way, and that is they're people with... with, uh, a nice dispositions; They're very easygoing people. Then there are others that are just not this way. They're mean, cranky people, and you have to put up with them and deal with them. I really don't think that in the way that Paul speaks of moderation and having a sweet spirit, that it's a characteristic that anybody has in the way that he speaks, unless you're a Christian. Because what he's talking about here is People who have a real heartfelt burden for other people, a real love for other people. It's the kind of people that always put themselves second to the needs of other people. That was really far from the uh, social tendencies of the time that Paul lived in. In his day, a person was considered to be weak if he had a compassionate spirit. If you didn't stand up for your rights, if you didn't assert yourself, um, then you were considered to be a very weak person. So compassion and, and that kind of an attitude was unusual for those kinds of people. This was a time when one half of the people were enslaved to the other half. And so there was a great difference, a great gap between the rich and the poor, between the aristocrats and the common people. And they just weren't used to the kinds of social tenets that Paul began to speak of when he was preaching to the Philippian people. What Paul wanted Christians to do was to stand apart from that dog-eat-dog world of the Greeks and the Romans. He wanted Christians to be something different so that people would know that there was something different about them. The way they acted, the way they interacted with other people, that there was a very definite difference in being a Christian and just being a normal Roman citizen or, or one of the barbarians that had been conquered by the Roman people. And we can go back to the Old Testament and we can find that the Old Testament even was very explicit about its teachings on kindness and gentleness. It's not a new concept that we get out of the New Testament. And it's really a characteristic of God's people all along. If you were a believer in Jehovah God, you understood that this was the kind of person that you were supposed to be. You were to take care of strangers. You were to be kind towards people, to be gentle towards them. Uh, The Old Testament taught about how you dealt with the poor. And so... It's not a new concept that we find in the New Testament. As I've taught you in the book of Matthew when we're going over the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly delineated between the two sections of the law. And that is the law that we are to love God and the law that we are to love man. And so, the love for one another and, and love for God, love as a theme, undergirded all of the Old Testament commands. And so, when we come to the New Testament and we read what Paul has to say, and especially... In the Apostle John's teachings, we find that love is the underlying theme. Love governs all of the relationships and the interactions that we have with one another. A sweet spirit is produced by a loving person. And so, someone who has a sweet spirit is gentle, compassionate, reasonable, he's easily entreated, he's long-suffering. And this is what Paul means when he says, Let your moderation be known to all men. So, if you are a cranky person... And you can't get along with other people if you're somebody who has a wagging tongue and you speak evil of others, especially, I would say, Christian people who speak evil of those that are in their own church and have bad things to say behind their back or even to their face. It means that you don't understand what a sweet spirit is all about. You really haven't got this thing of love down. You lack, you're you lacking in your love. And what it really says is that you are an unspiritual person. Now, having said that, we talked in the last lesson about ways that we can cultivate this kind of a spirit. Some people already have a good start on it because they have that nice disposition. But really, uh, this is a garden that every one of us needs to hoe. And I mean that we need to make sure that there aren't any weeds that grow up that choke the spirit that God says that we are to have. So I want to go back over just very briefly... Uh, some of the things that we talked about in the last lesson about how we can have that sweet spirit. Point number one of the message the last time was cultivate a forbearing spirit. And we talked about the ways that we can do that. So let me give you four ways rather quickly because I don't want to spend all the time uh, doing the last sermon. But the first one is don't be easily provoked. Don't be a person who gets angry easily. Be long-suffering. Don't retaliate against others when you're wrong. The psalmist says, God is merciful, he's gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. The second way to cultivate it is to be eager to forgive. The motivating factor for which we forgive others is the fact that God has forgiven us. And I think better said, we could say that God has magnanimously forgiven us. It was our sins that Christ went to the cross to die for. And because of our sin, Christ had to suffer there to pay for our forgiveness. It's the only way we could be forgiven. And so when we think about that God has forgiven us so much, so magnanimously, then why can't we forgive others who have sinned far less against us than we have against God? And forgiveness is such a common theme throughout the Bible that I think we can say that it is a major theme, a major teaching of Christianity. Thirdly... We mentioned that we must be equitable in judgment. And by that, I mean that we are to judge ourselves before we judge others. We ought not to write somebody off because they've done uh, something that's wrong, because we may be just as guilty as they are. So we're to judge with righteous judgment. And righteous judgment always begins with self-examination. Look at yourself. How do you compare? What have you done? What kind of sins do you have? Now, it doesn't mean that we can't talk to anybody about their sin. It doesn't mean that there's no criteria by which we can judge another person. It just says that we're to look at ourselves first, judge our own selves, because we could have fallen into the very same temptation that that person is in. So we need to be equitable in our judgment. Then fourthly, don't elevate self. Don't elevate self. The root... Of anger, of an unforgiving spirit, of an inequitable spirit, of a sour and bitter spirit is the view that we have of self. If we are constantly promoting ourselves, we are not going to promote others. We're not going to consider others. We'll be overly assertive of our rights. And whenever you do that, you're going to step on somebody else's rights. Now, Christ is one who had a very, as we know, very uh, selfless spirit. He gave up self. He was willing to give all to become a servant of men, and then finally to go to the death of the cross. Let me just remind you of Peter's comment, Second Peter chapter 1. Peter says, "...and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness." and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make that you shall, never, shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins." Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice particularly verse number 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So if you don't have a sweet spirit, if you don't let your moderation be known to all men, then Peter is saying you have forgotten what Christ has done in purging you from your sins. You've forgotten how greatly that you've been forgiven and the cost that was required for you to be forgiven. So others need to be able to see a change that's demonstrated in the spirit of a Christian. And if they don't, they come to the conclusion that the claims of Christianity are false. That we're nothing but... Hypocrites, just hypocritical people. The last time I dealt with the question, what kind of an advertisement are you for Christianity? And I surely hope that we're not false advertisers. Now, all of that then was an exposition of that very first sentence in in Philippians 4, verse number 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. But this is a two-part message, so I'm going to take up the second sentence tonight. And the subject of the second sentence is... The Lord is at hand, or that's the subject of the message, I should say. The Lord is at hand. So part number one was to cultivate a forbearing spirit, and part number two is concentrate on fleeting opportunities. Concentrate on fleeting opportunities. There's a purpose for which we should be constantly cultivating a forbearing spirit. So if we're not self-promoting people, then what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be people that promote others and a particular job that the Lord has given us to do. We are not called to be passive people. The call to salvation is not complete in our personal salvation. It's not complete in our personal salvation. There is an inner call and we're concerned about that that's when the lord speaks to us internally and and he tells us that he's he's he's, call, he's calling us out with the gospel of christ and he's making that call effectual in our hearts god calls us to be a part of his kingdom he saves us to be kingdom citizens but the whole idea of salvation that i as i've told you so often is that salvation is not all about you salvation is a byproduct of a much higher principle which is the glory of god and God is glorified by having chosen out for Himself a peculiar people, calling them out to salvation, and He makes them trophies of His grace. He saves us that we might glorify Him, and then He gives us the command that we are to go out and we are to find these others that He has called and give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, preach to them the gospel of grace, and then when God speaks of their heart effectually, then He receives glory because they start to glorify Him because of their salvation salvation now the thing is we don't know who those people are God hasn't made us privy to the ones that he's called in salvation he just says go out there and preach the gospel to every creature and that's what we call the outward call of the gospel the inward call is when God makes the gospel effectual in our own hearts but what he's called us to do is to give that outward call to every person so the Christian life is to be a busy one and a hurried one because of the second part of verse number 5. The Lord is at hand. Now, what does Paul mean by that, that expression? I don't know what your first impression of it is, but I can tell you what mine is when I read it. very first thing that comes to my mind is that Paul is saying, Jesus is coming soon. That's what I think when I read it. Or are some people who don't agree with that, and they say, well, no, it means that the Lord is near to us. And... I certainly do believe that the Lord is near to us. And I want to make sure that we don't leave out anything that might be implied in the text. And so, in the end of the message, I'm going to come back to that thought. But I do believe that the main thing that Paul is trying to teach is not that the Lord is near to us, but that the coming of Christ is near. Christ is coming back soon. Now, I believe that Paul then is saying that we need to get busy because the coming of Christ is near. So, if Christ's coming is near then the time to act is now. We've got to get busy right now because Christ is coming back. The Scriptures teach the imminent return of Christ. I believe that Paul thought that Christ would return in his lifetime. And he's teaching the Philippians to believe the same. Christ could come back at any moment. He's preparing them as he talks about all these different things that they might have this sweet spirit because Christ is coming back and we need to be people who win others to the Lord. I don't think that Paul thought any of the claims of Christianity would be untrue if Christ didn't come in his lifetime. We we don't see any disappointment or dissatisfaction in Paul's words if Christ should decide to come at another time. But what we always do see in his writings, and we see them in the writings of the other apostles, is the sense of urgency. There's urgency on two fronts. The first is that Christ is coming soon. And the second is that our time on earth is short. Either it's going to be shortened by Christ's coming or it's going to be shortened by just the brevity of life in general. Jesus taught the urgency of this matter on those two fronts. Now, I'm going to look at a couple of scriptures tonight that bring both of those sides of this into view. The first one is about Christ's coming. Now, I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 12 for just a moment. And here Jesus gives a parable where he's speaking about watchfulness and preparedness. Luke chapter 12, and we're going to start reading in verse number 35. Luke 12, verse number 35. Jesus says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Now there's the first indication right out of the gate that we need to be prepared. Let your loins be girded about. And what that means is to be ready to move in an instant. In those days, they wore long flowing garments and whenever somebody needed to get moving in a hurry, those garments would get in their way. And so what they had was a belt that they wore around their waist and whenever they had to move quickly, they would gather up all of their garments and they would tie them off around their waist with that belt. Now what Jesus is saying here is get prepared right now. Already have your loins girded, have those garments tied up and don't be in a place where you have to take time to do that. Then he says, and your light's burning. And that means to have your wicks already trimmed, have them already lit, have the lamp ready to go so you can rush out into the night if it's necessary to do so. And the light, of course, also refers to our mission. We are bearers of the light of Christ. The whole idea there is that Christ is coming back soon. We've got to be ready. We've got to be watching all of the time. Now look at verse number 36. He says, And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Now the reference there is to the master of the house. He's gone away to attend a wedding Servants don't know what time he's coming back. They're not apprised of the exact hour that he's coming. But a servant's job is one and only one. He serves the master. And so, he needs to be ready. When the master comes back, he has to be watching so the master doesn't stand outside waiting for the servant to come and open the door for him. He is supposed to be ready at all times. Verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. Now there we notice the time frame of his coming. The second watch would, of course, be in the night. And in this case, it's 9 o'clock p.m. until 12 a.m. The third watch is 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., so the idea here is that generally in the daytime, you're already prepared. I mean, you're, you're already going about your business and you may be watching. The idea is that you have to be ready in the night. You don't know what time he's coming. You don't go to bed, so to speak. The servant doesn't go to bed and let things go until the morning. A servant can't do that. If the master said he's coming back and they don't know the time, they're not to be sleeping. They have to stay awake and wait for him. In the next part, the metaphor changes, and Jesus talks about a thief that comes suddenly when people are asleep. Verse 39, And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. So there's urgency and preparedness in this. Jesus said in another place, nobody knows the time that he's coming back. And so he tells us to be on the lookout. Jesus taught and the apostles taught that we are to look for his coming. Now the time that has elapsed since Jesus made that promise is not important at all. We don't think about how long it has been. The only thing that we're to think about is it could be today. It could be soon. It's going to be soon. So we watch diligently for the Lord to return. Now, Paul encourages then the Philippians about this Christian character. And in effect, when he's telling us to have this sweet spirit or telling them to have the sweet spirit, he means that's part of girding up your loins. That's part of trimming the wicks on your lamps. It's being busy about the Lord's work and to have everything done when Jesus comes back. And if you don't have a right spirit and a sweet spirit, then the work of the Lord will be hindered. Think about how much harder it is to reach people when your poor spirit, when your mean-spiritedness causes you to take two steps back for every step that you take forward. So we have to have the sweet spirit. The Lord is at hand. So at any time, we don't know when it's going to be, the trumpet will sound. And so we've got to think about all those friends and family that we've had that we've been waiting around and say, well, there's going to be a more convenient time to talk to them about the Lord. One day it's going to be too late to do it because he's coming back. So urgency uh, in the coming of the Lord. So the Lord addresses urgency on that first front. That's the imminent return. The second front has to do with the brevity of life. The Lord is at hand, meaning that you don't know when you're going to be called home. You could, be, you could die at any moment. Now, I want you to turn over to John chapter 9, and we're going to see how that Jesus addressed that part of the issue of urgency. I referred to John chapter 9 a few weeks ago on Sunday night when we were studying Revelation, and at that time, I was speaking about how the gospel makes a, a difference in the revelation of Christ. We're talking here about the blind man, and a person who's blind to Christ, who doesn't understand who Christ is, will own, or the, understand that Christ as the Savior and hasn't been, had their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. That person is blind to anything but Jesus' humanity. They see Jesus in his humanity. But when the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart, our eyes are open, and that's when we see Christ in his deity. But we're going to look at another application of this text. Again, this is a story about a blind man that was healed by Jesus. And the story is, if you remember, Jesus spat on the ground. He made those little balls of mud. And he put those on the blind man's eyes. Now, Jesus was busy doing those kinds of miracles because time was growing short. Now, notice what he says in the beginning of chapter 9. And as Jesus passed by... He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I like verse number 3. And if you've been enlightened to the doctrines of grace, you see these kinds of things on every page of Scripture. He says, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. Before this man was ever born, God was working a sovereign plan for him. God caused him to be born blind. Now, that's what the Scripture says. God caused him to be born blind because Jesus was going to come along and he was going to heal this man for the glory of God. There would be a demonstration of God's power. So God, in his sovereignty had this man to be born blind for this purpose. Now, surely we ought to see beyond that factor and see that from eternity God knew that this was going to be so, and God had a purpose in saving this particular man. He was born blind so that the works of God could be manifest in him, but all of that's decided not on the spur of the moment. It's before this man was born. It goes all the way back to the foundation of the world when God decided he would show a sovereign purpose in this man by saving him. Now, there were uh, people that were all over the place at all, all kinds of illnesses. There were blind people all over the city. Hundreds were there that were lame. There were many people that were infirm. But here is one man that God had determined to save. And the same thing is seen in John chapter 5, verse 5, in the story of the impotent man that was healed at the pool of Bethesda. If you remember the story there, the Bible says, and a certain man was there. There was a certain man, there was one man among all the hundreds of the blind, impotent, withered people, all kinds of problems, and Jesus stepped over all of them and came to that one man, healed him, and saved him. Now that's one of the freebies that you get in the message. Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned God's sovereign grace because I see it everywhere that I go. You can't hardly read a page in the Bible without finding God's grace in it. But some don't see it, so they deny it. And, and you never hear them preach about these aspects of it. In my opinion, they leave out the best part. Let's go back to the subject. Look at verse number 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Now, Jesus there has reference to his death. His death was coming soon. Now, he had a very short ministry, and so he had to be busy in the daytime. That's a metaphor for saying that the ministry is going to be short. The night comes. That means the day of death. And he says nobody can work. Now, surely in this, you can also see that there's more to this teaching than Jesus just talking about his own death. He's also teaching us that our day of death is coming. We have to be busy now because we don't know when we're going to die. When the night comes, that's the day of death. Then we don't know or we, or we won't have an opportunity to, to speak to people about Christ. So the daytime, it's a metaphor for our lives. The nighttime is a metaphor for our death and where to be busy. Paul states it another way in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Wherefore, he saith, awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. Let me read you some comments from William MacDonald on this verse. And this really, it couldn't speak to our subject more clearly than what he says. He says, The walk of wisdom calls us to redeem the time or buy up the opportunities. Every day brings its open doors, its vast potential. Redeeming the time means living lives noted for holiness, deeds of mercy, and words of help. What lends special urgency to this matter is the evil character of the days in which we live. They remind us God will not always strive with man. The day of grace will soon close. The opportunities for worship, witness, and service on earth will soon be forever ended. Now, you see the urgency? Live lives of holiness with deeds of mercy and words of help. Isn't that having a sweet spirit? Isn't that what we're talking about here? Buy up the opportunities. Concentrate on fleeting opportunities, because God is not always going to strive with man. The day of grace is coming to a close, and all of our opportunities are going to be gone. You don't know what moment you're going to be called out of this world and So the time to act is now. Now let's look then at one other aspect of the statement. The time to act is now. The second is the time to appear is later. The Lord is at hand. Why do you need to cultivate a sweet spirit? I mean, why do you have to concentrate on the fleeting opportunities? Because the Lord is at hand. Because he's coming. The day of your death is coming soon. And when Christ comes, you will have to give an account of how you've lived your life. It's wonderful for us to know that our sins have been forgiven in Christ. It's great to know that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that it's not a time to decide whether God's going to let us into heaven. That's already been determined. Uh, Jesus died for our sins; He paid for them all, and so we're not worried at the judgment seat of Christ whether we've done enough good deeds in order to get us into the kingdom or into uh, into the kingdom of heaven. His perfect life, Christ's perfect life, and His atoning death are the guarantees for heaven. And if you are a believer in Christ, you are judged for your salvation based on Christ's performance. Now, this is one of the things that Brother Echno was teaching, and it's kind of interesting that our... Thoughts run con- concurrently on these kinds of things, but that's one of the things he was talking about. Is our, our salvation is not based upon our performance, so we're not always out here doing all these things and doing and doing and doing and, and thinking that somehow we have to perform for God. Our salvation is based upon Christ's performance only. But that doesn't mean we're not going to be judged. We certainly are going to be judged, and what we do in this life speaks a great deal about how happy we're going to be at that judgment. Here's what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Down through the years, I've heard a lot of preaching on the judgment seat of Christ. I've heard a lot of conflicting opinions about what it's going to be like, what kinds of things take place there. And I have to be honest with you. I I mean, I just have to say, I don't think we have enough information in the Scripture to to tell us the full implications of what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't think I can figure all that out. So I'm not going to be overly dogmatic about what takes place. But I do know this, it's going to be judgment. And I do know that there are rewards that are involved in this. And I know that we're going to be judged for the good and the bad. Now, what, how far God goes with the bad, I have no way of knowing. I don't think anybody knows that. I don't pretend to know. But this part I do know, I want to be pleasing to the Lord at that judgment because whatever else that I might know about it, if I'm pleasing to the Lord, that's going to be good for me. So, if I miss the opportunities, if I'm not working while it's day, then I won't be pleasing to the Lord. Now remember what Jesus says in Luke 12. He said, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Blessed, that's what I'm looking for. The time of our judgment is coming sometime later. I don't know when it's going to be, neither do you, but we need to have the kind of spirit that causes us to be looking for Christ and to be busy about his work, trying to reach others with the gospel. Well, as we finish this evening... I said that I was going to come back to this this other idea that some people have about the second sentence. And they say the Lord at hand, is at hand, refers to his nearness to us. So we're going to make that the final statement for your listening sheet tonight. Here it is Jesus is looking over your shoulder. Jesus is near to us, not just in terms of time, but he's also near to us in terms of space. We may not be able to see heaven. I would see Heaven, I mean we, we can 't see Christ, I mean our eyes are not fit for anything but a material world, so we can 't see the spiritual world, but that doesn 't mean that Christ, who transcends time and space, is not near to us. Jesus is so near that we can 't move without touching him he 's here even right now we can 't do anything without touching him, and so whenever you display a bad attitude. Whenever there's a root of bitterness in you, whenever you make those curt remarks, whenever there's a cutting comment that you make about someone, whenever your spirit is not so sweet, Jesus hears every word. Now, some of us are maybe, you know, maybe we're better than others at realizing the the nearness that God is to us. But there's no one, none of us that really understands what that's all about. He is just near to us, near to us. So I'm sure that. Paul had that in mind, and he knew that when he made this little statement, the Lord is at hand, it was going to raise some questions. And so I think that we have to include all those things that Paul might have contemplated when he makes a statement, the Lord is at hand. And the most important thing that we draw out of this is that a sweet spirit helps us fulfill Christ's commission. That's what we've been called to do. A sour and bitter spirit hinders the work of Christ. So we don't want to be that way. We want to glorify God by reaching those that, he's called, that he will call out for, to salvation for himself. So I pray that we would have that kind of spirit so that people will not say about the messengers of the gospel, please, Lord, save me from your followers. We hope that we're not the kind of people that invoke that kind of reaction. Here's what we want Isaiah said it, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good things of good, that publisheth, bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. I think it's what Paul means when he says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... I do thank you for the opportunity to look in your word tonight. And Lord, I do pray that all of the members of Briam Baptist Church would be people with a sweet spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would be friendly people, outgoing people, those who are willing to give the gospel to others. I pray that our church might be a place where people would come in and feel welcome and they would see the kind of spirit that they've heard so much that Christians are supposed to have. I pray, Lord, that we might not be false advertisers of Christianity. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless each one here tonight. We thank you again so much for their attendance and attention to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.